Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's featured writer is winner of five Ditmars, one Aurealis and a Julius Vogel Award, Lucy Sussex. Lucy's brand of weird fantasy and science fiction is always original and very personal, and this is no less true for her story for TISF, The Duchess of Newcastle, which shows eternal life can manifest itself in the strangest of ways. I saw her first in the gloom of a Milan fashion show, moments before kick-off, or as us fashionistas say, frock-off. She was more than fashionably late. She was as rudely late as a celebrity pushing her way through the assembled throng. That would have been permissible for a face from the glossies, but to judge from the outraged looks, she was an unknown. Moreover, the seat she was headed to was middle-ranked, Two down from me, in fact, in my capacity as fashion journalist for an Antipodean newspaper, and a long, long way from the rarefied front row, with its Hollywood stars and the heavy armaments of Anna Wintour from American Vogue and Susie Menks of the International Herald Tribune. Full marks for a meteoric entry, I thought. Unlike most fashion journos, I choose my words carefully. For her, the crowd was merely a dark, backdrop, a sky against which she left a trail of dazzle, head and toe. Her shoes were the -the state-of-the-art basketball players, with cute little inserts in the heels that flashed lightning with every step. From her ears depended an equally cutting-edge iPod, the new model for cyclists, which shone luminously pink and green. When she neared, I further noticed the silhouette of her skirt, unmistakably vintage Miyaki, with concertina tiered pleats, dangerously close to resembling a Chinese lantern. Finally, she brushed past me. I registered with the split-second timing of the seasoned fashioned watcher. The other elements of her ensemble, vintage lace camisole, classic English tweed race coat, a first doll and a toque. There was something avant-garde in the jewellery line too, but my concentration was broken by her looking me briefly in the eye and murmuring, a very carrying murmur as only the English upper class can do. Live like bats and owls, indeed. Oh, it was apt, for all of us fashion workers huddled together in the dark, a parliament of light creatures waiting for the fashion spectacle to begin. As it did fashionably late to the point of rudeness with a blast of sound a candy pink spotlight and this year's miss anorexia supermodel posed in bride of frankenstein wig and cape which she threw off to reveal not very much at all ribbons of artfully slashed chiffon as she sassayed down the catwalk i opened my notepad low-tech hardback art paper and started making descriptions either drawings or shorthand I was barely aware of a high-tech, very slim and dainty notebook being opened two seats down and a flurry of typing. Then I forgot about everything except the show. X number of outfits later, Miss Anorexia made her last appearance as a bride, still with overtones of Frankenstein and on the designer's arm. 
Both sported cocaine-eating grins. I made my last notes. Bias drapes, laser cuts, retro meat, space age. Then I felt someone brush past me again, and my jaw dropped as it hadn't throughout the entire show as the latecomer made an early exit. In the light I could register her colours, emerald green in the skirt, heather-like and tints in the waistcoat of Donegal Tweed, I guessed, yellowing ivy of the vintage lace offset by peacock feathers colouring the toque, red foxtails in the stole and amethysts in the jewellery, along with silver and what looked like well-nibbled bones. It shouldn't have gone together, but it did. That's fashion genius. I turned and looked into the square-framed glasses of my neighbour, a demure little Chinese lady from some Hong Kong glossy, but she said it first. Who the fuck was that? I had no notion, but a notion I would need to find out. When in doubt, ask a PR lady, even if she is pawpaw coloured with platinum blonde tresses and cerulean contact lenses. But Carla's English was dodgy, and the name she gave me sounded very much like a malentendu. Lady St. Parry. Not in Debrett, nor on Google either. Rather more promising was the affiliation, 21st century, a new web journal with some serious money behind it. Yet upon investigation, the issue up on the net seemed seriously boyish and techno-geeky. It certainly lacked the witty, eclectic femininity of the lady, if she was a lady with a capital L. I sighed and got down to work. Writing my copy to be filed across several time zones and half the world away is a ritual demanding perfect quiet, all alone in my hotel room. But tonight I was having difficulty maintaining my concentration. When I tried to detail just what about the collection was retro meets space age, what did I mean, and more importantly, what did the designer mean apart from business? A concertinaed skirt, a flash of lightning, the kiss of fur would come to mind and stop me in my tracks. Drat the girl, I thought. Yes, she had been a little more than one, quite petite. I wasn't being paid to describe this interloper, however interesting. Drastic measures were needed. I ordered an affogato from room service, double strength, and on an alcohol and caffeine fueled burst of energy, wrote my 800 words of fashion column and emailed it into the night. It was right on deadline in Sydney. Tomorrow would be Prada, Emporio, Armani, and several very important parties. Thanks to the affogato, I would now have the greatest difficulty in getting to sleep. Drat the girl, indeed. Milan passed, as it always did in a high-speed blur. Frocks, lights, blaring music, more frocks, shopping, long taxi rides, coffee, frantically typing my copy, ear kisses, ciao bella, alcohol, more coffee, guilty cigarettes, insincerity by the bucket. The only relief came from the few old-fashioned friends I trusted and Lady Whatever. I used to think a sight for sore eyes was a cliché, but not with her. I was red-eyed from the insane hours, but she always was not only eye candy, but eye balm. For Prada, she wore a titanium corselet, milkmaid frills, a fur muff and jackboots, with the diamante cromet in her long and undyed brown ringlets. Miuccia sent a flunky after her with his cell phone camera, I heard, which had to be a sign of approval. For Emporio Armani, she wore a leather bustle under a sequin tarquin jacket, the muff again, and a fur and a hat I can only describe as deconstructed, with nail clippers by the look of it. Oh, she diverted me, into a persistent piquant curiosity as to just who she really was and where she was coming from, a direction of the compass I surmised, where there was fresh, rarefied air. She also unsettled me profoundly. Precisely what about her had such an effect was harder to identify.
I began to get an inkling at one of the avant-garde shows held in a converted abattoir. Much dry ice was used, and every model wore buckled leather, even the obligatory bride. At the finale, the buckles and models were attached to a gun carriage on which the designer, a Slovakian, I think, was drawn solemnly down the runway. The lady sat there open-mouthed, then remarked loudly, "'Have you no pride? You women labour like beasts, cart-horses or oxen a la mode.' A comparison no girl, let alone a vain model, would appreciate, but luckily none of those on the catwalk understood English. I frowned, something rare in the fashion world thanks to Botox, and wrote in my notebook, Deja Vu. Not that I had seen her before, because I've trained a good natural memory to fashion police level. It was her words and the coincidence of interests. She represented English Aristo plus fashion plus technology plus the old-fashioned plus feminism which equalled a string of question marks. But something was missing, some vital component. I underlined deja vu and snapped my notebook shut. Now I followed my quarry through the milling throng. She had worn her iPod throughout the show, sensible given the fad for pain volume disco at this year's Milan. As I neared close enough to kiss, I could hear a faint tinkle from the iPod. Surely not harpsichord music. We were blocked briefly by the slow passage of one of the U.S. buyers, a massive man on crutches. As if sensing my presence, she turned. You even dress like bats or owls, all of you, or Puritans. Just to one side was Corinne Wrightfield from French Vogue, who claims only to wear colours in the countryside, and her crew of rock star wannabe minions, all of them clad inky sombre. I blushed and looked down at my classic Jasper Conran jacket, Colette Dinnigan dress and Prada boots, perfectly coordinated outfit in basic, now suddenly boring, conformist black. All I needed was a Bible, a big white collar and a stovepipe hat. In the moment I glanced down, the cloud cleared and off she went, striding through its speed, unimpeded by stiletto heels or other fashion foot-binding arts. I gazed at her retreating shape, a riot of colours, with hardly an item of her outfit which could be visually sourced to a designer, op or vintage shop, dressmaker, and saw, unlike anyone else at the show, an individual, a true original. I thought again, déjà vu. Something about her resonated from deep in my past, from long before I could have appreciated the art in her personal styling. But from where? It took me less than eight hours, my mind chewing on the problem while I drank wine, partied, showered, filed my copy and got ready for bed. At 3am I suddenly sat up from a troubled sleep. Snap! I had it. The deja vu was identified and from a most unlikely source, the Duchess. Once upon a time I was a grad student. Thesis underway, sessional tutoring for the experience, conference papers and articles in preparation. My life shared equally between my computer screen, the coffee shop and the rare books section of the university library. It was intensely intellectual, also lonely as hell, but not without its passions. When I encountered like minds, we would go into a huddle over Mary Wollstonecroft, Christava Irigaray and more rarely the Duchess of Newcastle. You had to be into the 17th century for her, but she had a small select fandom, including, somewhat reluctantly and backhandedly, Virginia Woolf, who name-checked her in a room of one's own. For those of you not familiar with the history of feminist thought, a brief life. Newcastle, Duchess of, 1623-73, to 73, Margaret Cavendish, née Lucas, younger daughter of the minor English gentry, 
lady-in-waiting at the court of Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria during the English Civil War, fell in love with and married the Duke of Newcastle when they were penniless exiles in France. Both were writers, she most unusually for the time, which liked its women, fecund and unlearned. She wrote and published under her own name poems, plays, works of natural science, novels, utopias, all imbued with a formidable facility for words, a vindication of women's rights, and a fanciful imagination. Not least, she was a fabulous and inventive dresser, as she herself wrote. And if a lady dress or chance to wear a gown to please herself or curl her hair, if not according as the fashion runs, Lord, how it sets a work their eyes and tongues! Straight she's fantastical, they all do cry, yet they will imitate her presently. For what they did laugh at at her in scorn, will with it think good themselves for adorn. Get the picture? Nonetheless survives of her fantastic regalia, but we do have her words in quotable quantity. It was she who said, and I who recognised the words, Women live like bats or owls, labour like beasts and die like worms. In a different world, like Afghanistan or 17th century England, or even academia under an economic re-rationalism, I might have lived like that too. It was thanks to the Duchess and her many successes, from Wollstonecraft to the Pankhurst, that I didn't. Even after I had belatedly realised that a professional love of the Duchess would condemn me to short-term contracts and slave labour working hours, and that my increasing addiction to designer clothes meant I would have to get a real job, I still loved her as an amateur. And I had no problem with someone else loving her too in sincere imitation, the greatest flattery, even quoting her. Postmodern intertextuality, they call it in the academy, a polite way of saying outright theft, in areas where true originality has vanished, such as architecture and above all fashion. Even the name Lady St. Parry I could now recognise as coming from the Duchess too. Lady St. Parry, without compare. It was a paradox of her personality that the Duchess could also use the personas of Lady and Mistress Bashful, shy, yet with a sense of her own worth. I could read that fanciful display at Milan Fashion Week as both the calculating act of a sharp operator, out to create an effect, and as a second-hand visionary. Not many people would have spotted the referencing not in the frivolous world of fashion. I could pride myself on that, but did it go even further? The Duchess was in her time popularly regarded as mad, and anyone who used her as a performative model could run the risk of getting too close for sanity. To quote from another era, the 60s movie performance, the only performance that really makes it all the way is the one that achieves madness. I checked that quote on Google and also spent a happy half hour rediscovering the works of the Duchess online, no longer only available in dusty rare book collections and dustier rare book shops. Then I shut my laptop down. Light was dawning outside and I had to catch a plane, not to the Antipodes, but to London, for an all-too-short respite before the Paris fashion shows started. Would I see her again there? I wondered. I certainly hoped so. My antidote to Milan was an old school friend's cottage, an amiable timeshare arrangement in the bucolic English countryside of Kent. I bought organic produce from the hippie neighbours, spent a lot of time in country walks and on the internet. It should have been idea chill-out time, but the lady continued to unsettle me. First I saw her report on Milan as posted on 21stCentury.com. As I had suspected, her brief for the shows was fashion versus new technology, and she generally found them wanting in that area and others. It was quite the most uninhibited fashion journalism I had read in years, and thus hugely enjoyable. 
not least for the way in which she kept sneaking in quotes from the Duchess. Debauched and loves his luxuries, on a San Francisco buyer who would, I knew, regard as a compliment. Necessity is a great commandress on fixing up a torn hem with a safety pin and having it taken for a fashion statement. Sweet marmalade of kisses on the orange lipstick used exclusively for the Fendi show. And yet, as I read on with side trips to online archives of 17th century women's writing and the like, I found myself frowning again. It was not just the quotations and the odd occasional archaisms of style and vocabulary, nor the fact of the writer speaking her frequently erudite mind with considerable passion and no care for what anyone else might think. The problem to me was that it read precisely as if the Duchess of Newcastle had been transported into our era via time machine, locked up in a room with an internet connection to bring her up to our 24-7 speed, given an expense account then set free. The Duchess had in fact died at the age of 50, prisoner of the 17th century and that more mundane time machine, the ageing meat of the human body. She most definitely had not done in Orlando, thanks Virginia, and yet the words in front of me suggested otherwise. Uncanny, I thought. Then some ghost from my little quit days said no, when Todorov used that word it was in reference to Anne Radcliffe's Gothic. Another interesting woman, but several centuries after the Duchess, in which there was a physical explanation for all the apparently supernatural events of a novel. How about Todorov's Fantastic, I thought, where the supernatural is problematic and the reader keeps oscillating endlessly between belief and disbelief. That was more how I felt. I could hardly hope for the marvellous where the supernatural is simply accepted as a feature of the world for Lady Sompareil to be the Duchess in actuality. When I got onto my fashion contacts again, as the parish shows inexorably neared, I found I was not the only person intrigued by Lady Sompareil. Her article had created a stir, especially the quip that Versace was suitable only for frowsy, tattered de Lehman boards, which must have had the PR flax reaching for the dictionary. Someone had found a blog site, gloriousfame.com. I spent an instructive hour there reading more channeled Duchess. She was in favour of technology, fox hunting, natch, monarchy, but found the Windsors dreadfully dull and unstylish, as you would, I thought, after the Stuarts, and despised the current poet laureate. Yet most valuable was the information that someone else had recognised the lady, as one Charlotte Lukes, formerly a high flyer with a distinctly staid English advertising firm, but responsible for a notorious ad on television for condoms. I begged, pleaded, threatened, and finally got a copy of the ad sent to me quite illegally over the web, and I burst out laughing. In a charming English country garden, nymphs frolicked around a trellis containing a manic cucumber vine over whose fruit they innocently fitted you-know-what. Virginia Woolf had written, What a vision of loneliness and riot the thought of Margaret Cavendish brings to mind, as if some giant cucumber had spread itself all over the roses and carnations in the garden and choked them to death. Who could bind, tame or civilise for human use that wild, generous, untutored intelligence? What indeed? Even death, it seemed, could not bind her, so that she could apparently arise from the grave and take an intertextual revenge on the divine Virginia. That did it. Paris might be imminent, but I had to satisfy my curiosity. I took the train up from Kent, my destination not Knightsbridge, but one of the few 17th century residential buildings left in London. 
It was in a tidy, forgotten corner, listed but dishevelled and yet not totally yuppified. Nervously I pushed the buzzer beside the name, C. Luke's. It rang, rang again, and then I thrust my hands into my pocket of my black coat, bitterly disappointed. The address I had obtained via an outrageous act of bribery, a prouder personal organiser case, the latest model, had been correct. But my bird of paradise had flown. I dawdled back to the tube station just as all hell broke loose. A crowd of commuters boiled out of their escalators and onto the pavements. Police sirens wailed and it seemed like the entire cast of the bill miraculously converged on the scene. There must be shooting an episode of the new Doctor Who, I thought. Then my brain belatedly registered the absence of lights and cameras in this action. Demmed heathen, said a voice behind me, an upper-class voice, impeccably politically incorrect. A girl's voice, and I turned to see my quarry on a new state-of-art pushbike. She had dressed down slightly for the London streets. Tweed knickerbockers, a military dress jacket, purple boxers boots and a safety helmet. The latter normally was most unchic, but she managed with hers to look alluring, a very simple effect achieved by letting the stray ringlet flow free. Another bomb attack, I said. Or just a very good scare, she replied. Now she was eyeing me, an unmistakable deja vu look. I held up my hand and after a suspicious pause she shook it. We met in Milan, Duchess, I said. Not a blink in that steady gaze, but I knew she had registered the words. Ah, Madame Puritan, she said, amongst all the other Puritans except for the silly shoes. They're Manolos, I said. From her expression she clearly pronounced the designer's name, Blah, Nick. Still silly. The tube's closed now and so are the buses. You'll have to walk. Oh, shit, I thought. I've got to get to Waterloo. She looked severe. Heaven does not always protect the persons of virtuous women travelling without their parents, husbands or particular friends to guard them, but sometimes lends a human help. That's from assaulted and pursued chastity, I think. Writers are vain and I just gratified her vanity. She stepped forward and onto the pedals, leaving the seat free and jerked her head at me, come hither. I cautiously mounted behind her and we set forth, via alleyways and mews through the streets of London town. The real Duchess, a protected aristocrat, would have been lost on her era's roads. Her modern incarnation seemed thankfully more streetwise and very well informed, thanks to the GPS receiver mounted on the handlebars. I sat back and watched the ringlets blow free in the newly unpolluted London air. What are you? I murmured half to myself. A reincarnation? She gave no sign of having heard, but nonetheless answered, That's more heathenism. Also Pythagorean, who you doubtless read. Another nod, but it's not true. You are a relation. I checked you out. Luke's, a variant spelling of Lucas, descended from one of Margaret Cavendish's brothers, a cadet branch. She was fond of her family, and it makes sense that she would follow the line. She dodged a clump of grumpy commuters. Peradventure. Or as Charlotte Lukes would say, maybe. She's not herself any more, not the home county's girl from the lesser gentry, who got herself to university and a good job in the city. Someone else is wearing her, as if she were a dress tried on and found a becoming fit. Is that how you refer to your... her breakdown? Breakdown? Fie! You have advertising industry gossips? I said nothing. Our current climate of terrorism means governments collect information on even their most law-abiding citizens. 
and there were ways to access it, connections in the most unlikely places with a taste for fashion industry freebies. I wore grey suits, she suddenly said. A parrot-hued pashmina, that was the first sign. And a sudden addiction to rare bookshops, eBay auctions for the strangest of things suddenly become desirable. A carmine velvet pixie hat, 1950s. It was only after I'd bought a subscription to the New Scientist and the collected works of the lady whom great-aunt Eliza used to refer to as Mad Madge that the penny started to drop. The office was selling tickets for a charity ball and so I dressed myself up in a paste-pearl cap with a half-moon of diamante brooch at the front, blue bugle bead and pearl coat fringed with red, green glittery boots, the whole finished with a spear also glittery in the shape of a comet. I said I was an empress and won first prize. The empress in the new blazing world wore real diamonds and pearls, I said, but near enough. As I found when I got home, my head swimming and I opened the book. The duchess wasn't of her time, I said cautiously, that's why they mocked her, but perhaps she had intimations of ours. She continued, on a roll like her bike, which was picking up speed down a slight incline. I swear I'd never read the description before, but I'd aped it faithfully. I got dressed up the next day in my grey suit, last time I wore it, the pashmina and the pixie hat, carrying the spear under my arm. I hung it on the wall of my cubicle and wrote an ad that day which earned me a promotion. She glanced over her shoulder briefly at me. Charlotte Lukes was hardly that silly slat and Bridget Jones, but she was unhappy and rather uninteresting. Far better to surrender and let myself be a far more interesting person. If this was madness, I thought, it was perfectly methodical. An awkward silence fell. I knew I had to keep the conversation going, but my opening neared the medal. I'll owe you for this trip, I said, as if the lady were a taxi service. Shall I buy you dinner in Paris? She glanced back over her shoulder again. Milan was quite enough for me. I asked 21st Century for the test drive column. Test drive? New tech, like this bike. The editor said, provided you don't make the column too girly. She chuckled. I had no idea if the Duchess had chuckled. Maybe the sense of humour was Charlotte Luke's. I foresaw an extremely girly column. Margaret Cavendish was constrained by the sex roles of her time, just like your feet, madam. Here she, or her shadow, can do anything she likes. I might go back to university and study science, join the Royal Society, which now emits women. Find a nice older man like her husband, the Duke. I dare you, I said, to find a real Duke. Via the internet, she chuckled again, but he'd better be fertile. She always wanted a baby, no woman in her era was complete without one. I'd like to give her that, at least. If you have given her something, I said, then it is far more than her wildest dreams, even in the new blazing world. A lady like Grunt as we hit a rut on the road. Next she negotiated a group of police who clearly didn't regard two women on a bike as terrorists. She kept sneaking glances at the GPS screen and muttering a mixture of mouth-filling oaths and admonitions at it. God's blood, we're not in Dulwich! I tried to speak, but she waved me silent. It dragged on as we passed more homeward-bound commuters, women carrying their office shoes in their hands and walking stocking foot, fat men sweating in their Savile Row suits, the fitness fanatics looking smug. Now we neared the Thames and the great station. She brought the bike to a neat halt outside the main entrance, set both booted foot on the ground and waited, back turned to me. I'd once interviewed a Japanese designer, a man forthcoming only for 30 minutes at a time. 
Then he abruptly retreated into himself, recharging his batteries for the next design or encounter. I sensed something similar here, a shy person performing sociability but only in bursts. Thanks, I said awkwardly, since she clearly did not want to prolong the goodbye. There was a pause in which she should have answered. Instead, she hit the pedals, accelerating almost from standstill, around a corner and out of sight, ringing her bell as she went. I gasped. There is a word of somewhat flexible meaning, to duchess. It can imply anything from condescension to co-option to doing someone over. Whatever, right now I felt as though I had been thoroughly duchessed. After a moment I added, or she has. What an egomaniac. The whole length of the trip she had not once asked me who I was nor where I came from. I'm Olivia, I mentally shouted. I'm from Sydney, and I know where you live, both places. The second being a magnificent tomb in the Westminster Abbey, erected by the loving, grieving Duke of Newcastle. I went into the station and checked the time for the Eurostar. Around me the tabloids shouted, Terror attack foiled, something for which I could not have cared less. Paris beckoned, and it was the nature of my bread and butter for me to follow. I still don't know how I got through the next week. It was Milan but en Francaise, Chanel instead of Prada, but the same old faces to my jaded eyes, almost the same clothes. I ear-kissed, I filed my copy, I partied, but never was I so thankful when I could finally settle into my business class seat in the metal tube taking me home to my sunburnt, blazing new world. And somewhere over Kamchatka, a plan hatched in my mind, a revenge and also a means to satisfy my curiosity. Lady Sompere was new tech and New Tech could analyse words in a way which the Duchess of Newcastle, sitting in her study at Welbeck Abbey, could never, ever have dreamed. Way back in my grad student days, I'd eked out my grant by doing typing for a professor, rendering the greats and not-so-greats of English literature into machine-readable form. Mary Perdita Robinson, Mary Shelley, the Bronte sisters, Professor Burroughs of the University of Newcastle, yes, carrying coals too indeed, had developed one of the first stylistic recognition programs, determining how the vocabulary, grammar, especially the commas, could reveal a writer's signature, even an anonymous text. I would need a large quantity of the Duchess's works for comparison and statistical analysis purposes. Easy peasy. Had not Virginia Woolf noted Margaret Cavendish's torrents of rhyme and prose, poetry and philosophy, congealed in quartos and folios? For Lady Sompere, I would have the articles from 21st Century Com, also the 18 months' worth of blog entries since Charlotte Lukes had taken a lucrative package from the advertising world. That should suffice. And now I sit in front of a computer screen, waiting as the silicon chips crunch through an author's words. There are no two identical writers, especially in style. The vocabulary would be a point of difference, as so much has changed since the 17th century. But underneath, as the professor says, remains the punctuation, the distinctive grammar and prosody of the writer. I had thought Charlotte Luke's imitation of the Duchess uncanny, but there was no physical explanation. It was fantastical for me to vacillate between belief and disbelief as to whether she had been possessed by the ghost of a poet or not. Yet was it too much to hope for the marvellous that they were one? The individual, inimitable, indivisible Duchess of Newcastle.
Terra incognita speculata. Terra incognita. Reviews. This month's review book is Managing Death by Trent Jameson. There's something deceptively simple about the writing and managing death. The second death works novel from Brisbane-based author Trent Jameson. Like the first book, Death Most Definite, it's a quick, bright and breezy read. Fast-paced, enjoyable, with good gags, and a plot that goes deeper than you at first imagine. It's only when you force yourself to stop, and believe me, you have to force yourself, and look at how he's doing what he's doing, that you see the incredible art with which Trent's constructed this story. For example, in the way he deftly summarises the key points of book one, fills us in on the world our hero finds himself in, and gets us right into the action for novel two in the space of four short pages. In Managing Death, Trent returns to one of his favourite themes – corporate backstabbing and gives it a delicious twist because in this world the backstabbing tends to happen with real knives, stone ones that whisper to you while they do their job. Stephen de Selby, the reluctant new regional death for the Australian sector, is only just beginning to learn the ropes of his new job when he and those he loves becomes the target for a supernatural killer. After the narrowly averted regional apocalypse in Book 1, the government is naturally a bit jumpy and starts poking their nose in where it's not wanted. And when hell all but breaks through Stephen's office window, the quasi-intelligence agency called the Closers wants some nose room too. Throw in the fact that Stephen has a death moot to organise with the 12 other regional deaths who all seem to hate each other with a vengeance. Oh, and the dark and angry god of the stirrers, avowed enemies of life, is about to come knocking on the doorstep, and you'll be amazed at how many balls Trent keeps up in the air. Even though it's a middle novel in the series, Managing Death manages to up the ante and hint at even bigger things to come in book three. And all that, coupled with the fact that Managing Death also delivers some real scares along with the action and laughs, makes this the most entertaining supernatural series to come out of Australia since, well, maybe since forever. Four and a half stars. Managing Death is published in Australia by Orbit. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyrighted by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2011. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.